Welcome to Intimate Interactions, your personal relationship study guide. From the stories of how we're told we're supposed to love to how we've learned to process through difficult emotions, no intimate topic is too big. This season, we talk about how intimacy intersects with jealousy, addiction, body image, shame, and much more. Let's talk. Hello, intimates. Mark Hughes returns in this episode discussing addiction and recovery. His history of encountering emotional abuse, homelessness, substance use, sexual assault, and prison didn't stop him from doing a 12-step program, getting sober, and staying sober. Faced with different body language as a trauma survivor, and different class markers in his speech and expressions, social situations are often alienating for him, especially with middle-class folks. Yet the 12th step of the 12-step program is helping others, and in my opinion, Mark does just that in both his day-to-day life as well as in this episode. He gives us an hour of his emotional labor to better understand his perspective on middle-class values, what's behind substance use, and flexible steps to doing the necessary work and healing. I look forward to sharing with you this raw and intimate session of Intimate Interactions. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with my guest, Mark Hughes, who is a comedian. I have your intro here somewhere. Storyteller and podcaster of Pulling the Trigger Podcast. Welcome, Mark. Hi again. So this time we are going to be talking about... Well, we were, we were originally going to do just recovery and drug use. And because we're so efficient at getting through time and, and nailing all the talking points, you're really concise with what you want to say, which I really enjoy. I wanted to talk a little bit about consent because we were just having a great conversation in the kitchen and I thought, might as well just continue this on the podcast. Why don't I just tell the story I told you Please, yeah. Okay, so after the hashtag Me Too thing was going on on the internet, I got paranoid about uh, offending. Sure. Right. And, and when Mark says this, he means in the legal sense. Yeah. Of well, le- legal and physical sense. It just, sure. Just because just it's not illegal doesn't mean it's not wrong. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Lots of stuff isn't illegal and still is unethical or hurtful. Yeah, I agree. Right? But I thought, I mean, um, but I'm still, I'm still care about myself. I don't want to get, like, fucking publicly, of, yeah. rid, you know. Of course. So I had a partner, still have her, and we were having sex, and I was checking in too much. Got you. Is it okay if I put my mouth here? Is it okay if I put my hands there? Is this okay? And afterwards, she texted me and said, that really fucking bugged me that you were doing that. Just because this shit happened to other people doesn't mean I have that problem. I'll let you know if I have a fucking problem. Don't do that again. And I was like, on the one hand, I felt bad because I got scolded. Sure. But on the other hand, I was like, oh, yeah. I don't have to overly think all this stuff all the time, right? Like right. what we were doing before I started doing that was, was perfect. probably still okay It now. was fine. Yeah, yeah. She never had a problem. Right? Yeah, so. it comes back to having that verbal communication with a person and being like, hey, do you ever feel like, like I just learned about this stuff, hashtag me too, and, and I'm starting to feel like I'm worried about whether I've been doing anything in our relationship that might have bothered you. Is everything we're doing okay? Are you good continuing with what we're doing? Like if you have anything, you can always bring it up with me. Like right. just having that one verbal check-in where, where she's like, no, I'm good. I like what we're doing. Yeah. Right. But again, you have, that's, that's a learning process. Yep. Yeah. It's and it, it it's as someone who's more versed than most people in all this stuff. I'll I'll admit those are hard conversations to have because yeah. it's like sometimes people don't know how to respond to a direct direct question or direct conversation yeah. like that. It it it, it 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 and it's not because they're bad or it's just sure. it's like oh it's because it feels odd. It feels like you don't have a map for how to answer it. And also you might be they might feel that you're introducing a problem when there wasn't one. Interesting, right? 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah, which comes back to if a person isn't emotionally upset by a situation, you don't have to go in and say you should feel violated right. by this. Like people are welcome to have their own experiences and if they're okay with a situation. I mean, I understand where it comes from because we've all maybe had that experience of discovering, oh, this was actually a really violating, a really shitty experience for me and wishing like, I wish I had been aware sooner. But in like what little experience I have thinking about other people dealing with these things, I don't think anyone's ever come to that realization. I don't know, maybe I'll get called out for, for saying that, but gets come, comes to that realization because someone else says, let me sit you down and tell you how your experiences are terrible for you. Yeah. Like there's a fine line between I'm concerned as a friend you're being taken advantage of, or I'm concerned as a friend for you hear my concerns. And the person says, no, that's not a thing. And going past that point to, yes, it's a thing because, and it's like, you don't need to convince people about their personal experiences. I've let them be the experts. I've seen a lot of instances of that ever since the hashtag me too thing came where uh someone will third party accuse someone mm. uh, because they think it was because they were drunk sure and it's like just because two drunk people have sex doesn't mean there wasn't consent right right it, i mean i take a best practices approach yeah. which is like sure maybe it's not best practices to try yeah. and get consent when you're drunk yeah. but just because you're drunk doesn't inherently mean there's no consent i know women women sure who like to get in their words sloppy drunk and have sloppy sex and I mean, if, so there are other, that's not necessarily a low risk behavior yeah, no, and I'm not no. saying that to shame them. I'm yeah. not saying that that's a recipe for non-consent. I'm not saying they deserve what happens to them. Like I'm not, I'm not being that shamey asshole that's sex negative about it. If they want to get sloppy drunk and have sloppy sex, that's you do you, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's also a riskier behavior than having sex when you're sober. Mm -hmm. So it's a question of acknowledging all of these risk factors, a framework I'm sure you're familiar with. Oh yeah. Um, sober sex is uh, well. I mean, I didn't. Ha I didn't really have a lot that fucked up that was consensual anyway. So I, I uh, most of my sex has only ever been sober. Like consensual sex has been right. sober. So yeah, it's difficult though because a lot of the people I've dated and my partners do drink, mm -hmm. and they will get. Mm, I'm not gonna say wasted, but mm -hmm. you know they'll have a few and then want to drink or want to have sex, and that's always a bit of a. Not always. I don't always think about it, but it, it's sometimes you know in in this day and age, yeah, I, I, it's something that crosses my mind sometimes. It's like, huh, I wonder if this is okay. Mm -hmm. And I've asked before, and like one of my partners even sent me a, t a funny text one time with a signature that I know is not legally binding, but she said, here's few going forward, no matter how drunk I am, you can do whatever you want to me and lick my bum and all this kind of stuff. Sure, and sure. I was, like here are the things I like doing in sex just yeah, so and, that you would be like, okay, yeah, I yeah. can be a little less anxious yeah, about this. Yeah, and, uh, and it wasn't even that I was being anxious, but it was while a lot of the Me Too stuff was going on and I was talking about guys getting like accused and, and she said, just so you know, it's okay. I mean, that's kind of sweet that yeah. she's like, I hear that you're expressing this anxiety or this fear or this worry or mm -hmm. this concern. And here is me saying, no, I really fucking like you and want to do all this filthy stuff with you while I'm yeah. sloppy drunk. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as a kinkster myself, I look at when people have proclivities, desires, um, they like having sex sloppy drunk, for example. Like, yeah. I look at that and say, yeah, like consenting adults should be allowed to do what they want. And some people take issue with being not stone cold sober means you're not able to give consent. And I think the very mindset of looking at consent from a litigious, like adversarial me versus you position, I think that whole framework is not as helpful as it could be. I think if we start looking at consent more from here, like the best practices, if, if you don't want to end up in a situation where you're being accused of sexual assault one day, 
you know, five years after something has happened, here are the things you can look at and the types of behaviors you can choose to do that will reduce that risk. Here's, here's your best chance for treating people very respectfully for them because we all process stuff so differently. Yeah. I mean, I've had women freak out at me because I didn't want to have sex with them because they were too drunk. Which is super non-consensual. Like, I mean, if you don't want to have sex, you don't want to have sex. You don't have to explain that. But, no. of course, you a know, lot of, uh, masculinity and... Well, a lot of heterosexual normal women are not sure. used to being turned down for sex. Yeah, and I suppose... It, it, it maybe comes up once or twice in their entire life, right? Like, when they're hot and ready, mm-hmm. good to go. Yeah. Very rarely, like I've been told, and I'm no stud, just reporting the facts. Yeah, I've been told numerous times because of the, this exact issue. I'm the yep. first person that's ever turned them down for sex, and they fucking freak out. Last time I was seriously called a faggot, not in a joke or anything like that, uh. was by a woman I was turning down for sex. Yeah, because it was an awkward situation. It was just it, I was like, nope, I'm not doing this, and freaked out at me. Right, and it's it's. Uh, I've had women pretty much le- in the le- most legal sense sexually assault me because yeah. I turned them down for sex. I'm uh, really sorry to yeah. hear that. Ah, People don't it. take it seriously. No. And it's just as serious as any it's sexual assault. It is what it is. Yeah, but we're not going to conquer that one today. So uh. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it is what it is, and that's the, that's, that's the life. Yeah, that's uh, my biggest concern the last time I was quote-unquote, well, it was sexual assault, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, my biggest concern was getting her out of the house because she was freaking out because I wouldn't have sex with her and crying and why, what's wrong with me. And I don't give a fuck. I'm not... You're like, this isn't... I didn't sign up to be your therapist. Nope. I acknowledge you're dealing with a lot of shit, and I do not have the resources to And be. I could tell most guys probably have went and comforted her, and I'm like, that's not going to be me right now. You just... T- you you stuck my dick in your mouth ever. I told you no three times. Um, yeah. My biggest concern was, how do I get her out of there? Right. And if I call the police because I have to get they'll her out of there... They'll arrest you. They'll arrest me. Yeah. Now, this is a good point that I want to make is, who had the power in that situation? Right. She could have used proxy violence... Call right. the police. Yeah. All yeah. she would have had to say is this guy... Da, 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 da. Maybe I wouldn't have been convicted of it or sure, anything. Sure, right? sure, sure. Which, which, yeah. But, I mean, that's not the point. Yeah. Like, the use of police force isn't always about conviction. No. The very process can be quite traumatizing, both for the accuser and yeah. for the accused. Yeah. So, and I was not scared of my bodily autonomy from her. Right. I was scared more for my social reputation. And, and maybe my freedom at right. that moment. And, 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 and those are, that's fucking terrifying. Yeah, well, I would have rather, honestly, I'm not, this isn't hyperbole, I would have rather her hold me down with a knife to my throat than those two concerns. Right. Because the knife to, to the throat ends when she's done. Yeah. The rest of it can go on for years. Right. Yeah. So. And that's part of being a survivor of trauma, I think. Yeah. Well. It's like when you've had a traumatic experience, you're like, I would rather a short traumatic experience yep. than a long, drawn-out mental health concern. Well, I think anyone, really, if you if you were faced with the prospect of this will be over in five minutes, or your reputation and, 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 and could be damaged sure. for years, or you could go to jail. People would take the five minutes. Yeah. Even if it's really uncomfortable and traumatizing, yeah. I think people would usually take the five minutes. So, and the reason I bring that particular point up is just to illustrate that it's not always, back to other stuff we've talked about, sure. it's not always as black and white as straight, white, male, yeah. has all the power. And, sure. and oh, well, I was the, because one of the things you hear about with a lot of people when it comes to these discussions about consent and stuff like that is, because I'm a, the male... I can never experience sexual assault the same way a female does because I have more power because of my body size and muscle mass and social power. Uh, so 
And I just bring... Yeah, just because you've... Yes, you're just... All I'm saying is yeah. who had the power in that one. Right. Right? Well, My like, house, too. Right? Yeah. yeah. I yeah. had to comfort the ferrets for so long after that. They're like, who is that? Who is that mean lady? That, that's a that no. They, a, they they were assholes. They didn't wake up or help me or anything. They didn't uh, even <laughs> fucking dinks. <laughs> totally left me alone. That is like classic Marquis yeah. humor. Yeah, I like it. Um, not the. <laughs> be careful about how I say that. That's okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but we were taught the, the addiction and recovery. Um, mm-hmm. Addiction is one of the reasons I have to deal with all this is because I'm sober and one of the reasons I'm sober or the main reason I'm sober is because I have yeah. an addiction issue and, and yeah. I was addicted to heroin and cocaine for many many years and um, so I live I my my recover my recovery modality of choice is uh, abstinence based I use 12 step programs and um, so learning to navigate life and intimacy and sexual relationships and stuff like that mm-hmm. in that regard is in some ways it's a benefit in some ways being in 12-step groups is an advantage because you're trying to lead an ethical life when you're right. you're already used to talking about feelings and emotions and intent and motives and right. things like that because that's part of the culture of 12 steps kink and 12 step are very similar that really? way where you talk too much about feelings <laughs> right and, <laughs> sure. right um the sex stuff's just a bit different. And, and right. The, I would say 12-step tends to be a bit more puritanical, which can be unfortunate, but yeah. it, 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 it's puritanical on the surface. Okay. Yeah. And then got a bunch of lonely, horny people with maladaptive coping mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, which, for reference... Oh, 13-step is when... Uh, well, you get a bunch of different definitions, but the consensus would be is when a more senior member of the 12-step sure. community takes advantage... Not just has sex, because that's, it's not, some people will say if a senior person has sex with a newer person, that's a 13 step. Right. A lot of people, that's not exactly accurate. It's more like if you did it under the guise of helping them. Hey, want to ride to meetings? Hey, I'll take you through the steps. And then you. Why don't I, why don't I take you to coffee? And it's seen as a mentorship opportunity and and they're just taking advantage of sex. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's lots of people who are years sober. Who will right. ask someone out who's six months and everyone's fine, nothing's wrong, no one's taken advantage sure. of, no one's uh, sobriety's in jeopardy or anything sure. like that. It, and then there's some people who are like, then there's one where the newer person might have more power in certain ways than the sure. older one because sure. the older one might have certain deficits, sure. mental health problems, and the sure. newer one, just because you're new in recovery doesn't mean you're super fucked up. Sure. Some people, their only problem was the drinking and drug use. They still have money, they mm-hmm. still have social mm-hmm. standing, they still have a car, they still have a place. Yeah. Then there's some people who come in who are very good at manipulating. Mm. And you might have a guy or a girl, 10 years sober, who's lonely and, you know, hasn't had a good luck, good luck with intimacy and sexual relationships. And you get a newcomer who's, you know, they're used to working that angle. Boom. Got you. Right? So. Yeah. So it's called the 13th step because it's fairly common that this happens. It's pretty common. It's, it's, it's. It's one of these things that's, yeah, it can be more common in certain areas. It can be more common depending on who's doing certain things and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Oh, sorry, who's around. Mm-hmm. Tends to be, 13-steppers tend to be just like any other sexual type. I'll use this term loosely, but predator tends to be the sure. same people over and over again. Same yeah. patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Great. Well, I was I was going to start this with a question on uh, what relationships or social resources would you say are essential to moving through addiction? But we've already touched on twelve step programs yeah. as one of well, them. Well, the I can expand on that though, sure. because of the question. I would say addiction recovery is hard to do alone. No, twelve step isn't the only way to do it. Especially these days, there's sure. tons of ways to do it. But I would always caution anyone, even though I'm a twelve step guy, and I can't necessarily speak authoritatively on any other way to do it. Mm-hmm. I'd say try not to do it alone. Right, right, and w- lo- by by that I mean, do you have at least one person you can talk to when you're feeling lonely and fucked up and stuff? Sure. Right, just one healthy, and, and healthy doesn't necessarily mean they're abstinent, but won't be like, oh, here, smoke some crack, right? You know, right. someone yeah. that's supportive of your recovery. Right, yeah, I like that. I had so many things I wanted to say, and then I got so engrossed in what you were saying. I guess that's a good thing. Okay. <laughs> Um, I've often heard addicts talk about drug use bringing a sense of community while the high is there, and that sense of community then evaporates when they become sober. So, like, what's your experience around um, getting a hobby or joining a community group? Uh, tough. Yeah. Because of in, if, if people are listening to the previous episodes of all these social deficits and problems and all Let's- that. Let's run through really quickly um, what we covered um, in the first episode. We mentioned that you had a history of incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's already come up that you're a sexual assault survivor. Yep. Um, what else did we touch on? That you've been homeless before? I've been homeless, uh, you know, socialized in these environments uh, right. similar to you. I didn't, I had friends, but sort of would lose them really easily and wasn't part of the cool people and didn't know mm-hmm. how, like, I didn't, I didn't do well in high school, which people, is how, People how, avoided me. Yeah, same. Yeah. I wasn't invited to anything. Except for the occasional person that would come up and slug me and call me a fag. Right, yeah. Yeah. Shit like that. Right? I like how we just, like, that goes without saying. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I was more comfortable on the streets and in yeah. prison than I was in, like, normal society. So wow. that's how I got socialized. So then I come out and I'm trying to be, I don't want to be part of that life anymore, that community. But it's be what p- you know. Yeah. But it's going to kill me. So I have to be part of this right. new one right. that I've never, I don't have a good history with. Right? right. And now it's exacerbated by all this stuff that I did in the meantime. Right. Right. Yeah. Especially while you're transitioning and, and trying to figure out this new social environment. Absolutely. And, and let's, let's give it some real time, concrete examples. Sure. Ba- a sense of humor that's offensive and inappropriate. Sure. Um, or not, that you're told as such. Yeah, yeah. Not knowing how to small talk. Not knowing how to keep a conversation going. Being too intense. Uh, oh. Twitchy, jerky body language. Uh, easily triggered. Um, uh, not being charismatic. Uh, talking too much about traumatic incidents. Um, uh, not being able to maintain eye contact uh, in a sexual um, uh Sure. Uh, sense. So, like, with, with potential sexual partners, I'm so separated from my sexuality, I don't know how to be sexual. Uh, I'm scared of making a move at all because I don't want to be an offender of any kind. Because right. that's the thing is sometimes when you're a survivor of sexual abuse, yeah. you don't want to ever inflict that on anyone else. Yeah. But that doesn't exactly sexy when you're scared yeah. of your own shadow sexually, yeah. especially in heterosexual dynamics because normal heterosexual dynamics yeah. is... Like Often the guy has to make a move, right? And and if you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs, scared to do anything, usually the girl will think, oh, maybe he's not interested that way, right? right. So yeah, that is that is the mainstream narrative yeah. that men are the initiators of sex. Yeah, and I'm not even saying there's anything wrong with that necessarily, sure. but I'm just saying that's that's what I had to deal with, right? right? So yeah, it can be very lonely. Yeah, I imagine it would be if yeah. you didn't have the tools to initiate any kind of interest or d- dialogue. And initiate doesn't even mean physical touch or anything no, like that. Right, it can be right. a communication, right? Yeah, or just a verbal communication. The approaching, yeah. the yeah. getting of the hey, phone number. you're yeah. pretty 
you're pretty attractive. Would you like to go out sometime? I was terrified of doing that. Terror. Yeah. I remember people told me, "Man, you gotta pull the trigger. You gotta, you, you know, you gotta bite the bullet and just take a stab at it." And I'd be like, "No. What if she gets scared?" Yeah. And she, they're like, "No, she's not gonna get scared." I'm like, and then I, the, my bullshit would come in. You don't know me. Right. Do you know how scary I can be? Like, sure. and I don't want to be scary anymore. Right. So. Right. Yeah, that sounds like a lot. <sighs> Tell you, man, it was fucking. It wasn't fun. Yeah. Prison was easier than that shit, to be honest. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that's intense. Yeah. Um, I I also resonate with you saying that people give you the feedback you're too intense. That's yeah. when I get. I've, since then, done everything in my power to be the most relaxed person I can be because I realized that that edge of intensity was not serving me anymore. Right. I would be like literally just moving my clothes from the washer to the dryer. And I could feel the intensity that I was doing everything with. It was like there was so much tension and um, I don't even know how to describe it, but I, everything I did just felt more urgent than it needed to feel. Right. And just being able to strip a little bit of that anxiety and a little bit of that, that forcefulness out of cleaning the dishes, out of, out of putting the dishes away, out of little physical actions... I found that that felt like a relief for me. So I just started doing it more and more and then cut to today where I'm like, yeah, people almost see me as laid back almost. Right. Right. I give people the impression I'm laid back sometimes, even though people who know me know that's not, the I can case. tell you're not because of the organization. Oh yeah. yes. Yeah. I agree There's, completely. Yeah. And that, but I mean, I think in some ways that's a probably better channeled way to do it. Cause it, it, at least it's just like when you sent me all those questions in the email, my first thought was, Holy fuck, Victor! That's a lot of fucking questions, man. Like uh, clearly, I, you spent some time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm out. like, I didn't think about this that much, yeah, right? Like, and but and then I realized, okay, this is. This I is know you strategy. well enough to know this is your thing, right? Totally. And that, that's okay. And um, but see how I dealt with it is right. I just went this chunk of questions I don't really feel like getting into, yep. and you were like, oh yeah, okay, cool, we'll drop right. it. And we don't. It, it doesn't need to be. I didn't feel oppressed. Like by you didn't it. feel pressured to. You had to do these things. For me, nope. it was like, I want to make sure I'm doing my job as a host to yeah. give you the guidance you need to get your story out in a way yeah. that feels put together that you're happy with. Yep. And I think we're doing okay. Yeah, huh? I think so too. Huh? I mean, I've definitely felt like I've really dropped the ball on this before. Yeah. So now I kind of do what I always do with anxiety or worry, which is plan, yeah. organize, and prepare. Are you a perfectionist? I used to be. I'm not a perfectionist. I like to think I'm not a perfectionist okay. anymore. I try and be a growth-minded person right. where I focus on, like, I really fucked this up. I'm going to try and do better in future. Right. As opposed to, I need to make sure I don't fuck this up. Right. And it's like, that shift for me was hard. Yeah. But I think I'm in a place where I'm not too much of a perfectionist for to be livable. You know what I mean? Because right. I, I know that perfectionism feels, at least to me, as, like, a continuum. Right. And it gets to a place where you're like, this is unsustainable, like... I used to be a perfectionist too. It comes from my parents, where it's a, but I'm not so much anymore. I just I always take the I'm similar. Just what can I learn from this? How can I improve it? Better luck next time. That's it. Yeah, that's really I think a healthy place that's to all get you to. can do because you can never achieve perfection anyway. And, and you make it you make it difficult to be around if you're a perfectionist too for yourself too. Even in your yeah, own head, it's absolutely right. I think people don't always understand that when they're not perfectionists. They'll be like, wow, this person's really critical of me. I think he's just an asshole. Mm -hmm. I got that for years. Like, people just thought I was a really condescending, even contemptuous person when it was like, I'm actively uncomfortable when I watch someone else fail at something to the point where I feel like I need to do something about it. I have a thing where I can't be really around perfectionists because yeah. it's like, I'm, I'm, 
a lot of the things in my life are not necessarily the most smooth. I can be very rough. Functional. Yeah. My life's fine. But to a perfectionist, especially using middle-class perfectionists... They see you juggling. And they can't help but offer the unsolicited advice, and that's wrong, you're risking, uh, there's going to be a problem, or right. and, and it's like... You have to get your shit together, hey man, like, I'm I, getting my shit together. Yeah, man, I gotta fucking worry about not committing bank robberies, like, yeah. every day. I don't care about if I fucking didn't do the yeah. fucking thing right, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, and so, and I find, because I'm somewhat approachable, too, to a certain degree, sure. they feel there's license to give me all, and it's like, right. nope. Yeah. Right. You're like, I have no desire to have hear that advice from you. I'm nope. dealing with the big things, not the little and granular yeah, And things. none of that's even really going to improve my life. Yeah. That's the other thing. A lot of the stuff's so Mickey Mouse. It's like, dude, that's not good. That doesn't like, do that anything. Who gives a shit, me. right? It's not going to affect my mental health. Yeah. Like, it's not affecting the big things that yeah. I'm really focusing on. Yeah. I hear you. Cool. Um, so, <laughs> heavy, heavy topics. We talked about community. We talked about joining a group and how hard it can be with socialization and the way that just using narcotics and being in the communities that tend to use them can socialize you in a way that makes it hard to leave that. Yeah, it can make it easy. Drugs can make it easier to socialize or take away the need to. Ah, yeah. facilitate not having to practice those skills. You just feel great, and other people are just going to bum you out, so who cares, right? Right. Yeah. And then you spend time around other addicts because they feel great and they Sometimes don't shame not even you. if you're re- like if you're like me, I was really fucked up, and even other addicts didn't want to hang around me. Wow, because you know, it was dangerous, right? Not necessarily like if we were getting high, not to you, sure. but I might do something that's outlandish, like okay. just all of a sudden commit a crime, and they'd be right. like, "Oh, what the fuck was that?" And it's like, "Well, right, do you want to keep the party going or what?" Right? Like and we need right, we need to yeah. get stuff to yeah. continue getting. And stuff. And they were just like sitting there relaxed, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, life is a diverse, weird, and hard to keep track of thing. Oh, yeah. It's like people are just from so many different walks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm going to ask the question anyway, even though I feel like I know the answer. To what extent do you think addiction is related to trauma? And not just from your own experiences, but even based on the stories you hear from 12-step programs. All right, uh, there's two answers to that. Okay. I think not everyone who's an addict has experienced trauma. Okay. Lots haven't. In fact, I'd say the majority haven't. Okay. Depending on your definition of trauma. Sure. That's that's sort of the the, the qualifying answer, though. Um, Right. If you went to your average AA or NA meeting, which I don't necessarily go to, and I'm not saying I do one way or the other. Sure. uh, to a uh, so step, I've heard to a twelve-step uh, program. Most of the people there would be just average people who had average lives, who who th- their upbringings or whatever sure. were just no different than the average person on the street. Right? Okay, and then the I would say I wouldn't call it a small minority, but it, it, it it's maybe twenty-five percent had hard lives or hard sure. experiences, quote unquote. Now, then we have to define what trauma is. Mm-hmm. Now, trauma is being redefined all the time. So someone could be, for example, dad being away too much working could be a form of trauma when you were a kid. Right? Got you. Yeah, in a critical uh, developmental stage or sure. something like that. Right? Where you so, internalize some false belief about not being lovable, not being worthwhile. Et cetera. So yeah. I'll leave it there. Sure. Anyone can do their own interpretations of that. Got you. So uh, that's... It, 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 doesn't because the thing is is one of the reasons i i want to make sure that people don't always think oh it's always trauma because there's lots of people who had pretty good families and upbringings and all that kind of stuff and they have horrendous they have drug problems worse than me 
sure. right? So just to be like, oh no, it's always trauma, I think is a bit simplistic. And, yeah, and, and, reductive. And, 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 yeah, reductive, better word. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, awesome. That was a great answer. So could you give a brief summary of what a 12-step program is? Like roughly, we've touched on it. Yeah, 12-step programs are basically groups of fellow people with that same problem, whether it's drugs, alcohol, uh, codependency, or sure. even you can even break it down into specific substances, like there's crystal meth anonymous, there's marijuana anonymous, there's heroin anonymous, there's cocaine anonymous, alcoholics right. anonymous, which is the first one. Sure. And they meet together to support each other and help each other get sober. Uh, it, it, it's propped up, or the, 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 the approach, roughly speaking, is the 12 steps. Um, right. And uh, the 12 steps is a, is a, you know, it's a layman's treatment program mm -hmm. that has spiritual components. Uh, and uh, if you do, the, if it, uh, many people who do the 12 steps, but not all, who try their best to do them often will end up with, uh, I'm not even going to say sobriety necessarily, but improved lives. Like there's people who will do, attend 12-step programs and do steps and all this kind of stuff who don't necessarily stay sober for the rest of their lives, but they might only go out on a week, they might only get high on a weekend once every six months. That's a vast improvement from every day yeah. and being homeless and like fucked yeah. up and all that kind of stuff, right? Or there's people who go to 12-step programs for a, a while sure. and then leave and then they're able to drink again. Huh. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, new addiction research shows that the majority of people with substance abuse issues and or addiction, depending on what your definition of addiction is, will eventually grow out of it. Wow. Yeah. Like that if they have, if they're Just able over to... Over a long enough period of time, it will completely... You can retrain your brain. It'll completely vanish or diminish. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That brains are retrainable, that you can lose that yeah. compulsion. There is a percentage of people who never outgrow it, though. Yeah. I'm one of them. That, that it, it's... And this is something a lot of quote-unquote normal people would never understand. Is like, I've been clean and sober 12 years, and I know if I was to have a drink tonight, it would ruin my life. Wow. Yeah. It would just take one. That's yep. it. That's it. It wouldn't be that drink. It would be like, okay, I have the drink, then I have another one, then yep. I have another one, and yep. then I'm calling the dealer. Yeah. And then when I run out of money, yep. I'm doing robberies. Right. Right. So it, it's in, in, in people go, oh, no, that wouldn't happen. Yeah, it happens. I've seen it so many times, and it happened yeah. to me once. So yeah. uh, years ago, I tried recovery for... I was sober for almost four years, and then I started using, I started, did ecstasy, which I'd never had a problem with, and I was going to do it for spiritual reasons, because oh, her and I would connect better while we're having sex, right? Within a month, I was robbing a bank. Oh, jeez. Right? I'm so, sorry to hear that. Uh, Relapses are always, like, the the hardest stories for me, because yeah. there's something about it that just, it, it's so hopeful until it's not. Yeah. But I'm glad you know yourself. Like, yeah, and so it just abstinence is just m the best policy for me, and yeah. uh, I'm not saying it, everyone else needs to do that, but it works for me pretty good. It works for other people I know pretty good. Awesome. So, yeah. That's great. So I, I have heard that the 12-step programs are pretty spiritual, and maybe I'll just touch on um, something I heard from Brené Brown's research before I ask my question. Um, Brené Brown was talking about the hustle for worthiness and how we connect with a sense of feeling worthy again when we feel totally worthless. And what Brené Brown suggested was that a higher power was necessary, but she defined a higher power very clearly because she's a researcher, and she said it really doesn't have to be, I, I don't have the direct quote, so I'm paraphrasing, it really doesn't have to be God, it doesn't have to be spirituality, it doesn't even have to be something supernatural, 
it just has to be something that is bigger than you. You have to view yourself as being part of something. You have to be part of something bigger than you. So I was thinking about things like, what are some examples of like godless bigger than you things? And for me, the one that I use in my life is evolution. Like thinking that literally from myself back to the very first cell that, that, that essentially gave rise to all life as we know it now. I shouldn't say the very first cell. I should say the cell that gave rise to all life on earth now. There is a continuous unbroken chain of organisms that lived long enough to have offspring and their offspring lived long enough to have offspring that leads from that all the way to me. That's, that's being part of something bigger. Sure, maybe this is where the tree gets pruned, right? But at the same time, I don't need to believe there's a purpose to believe that, yeah, like I am part of the permutations of people. I am part of the way we all get made differently in the hopes that as a species we succeed more. And you can touch on anything that's bigger than you and create a secular, quote-unquote, higher power. And getting to my question, in terms of the 12-step program, there or any 12-step program, usually there's some component of a higher power. And I was curious if, because my understanding is you're an atheist, if you could speak to that. You basically answered what I would have said as being part of a greater thing and what a lot of people do. So, for example... In my particular case, I think the reason that 12-step programs work for me is because I feel like I'm part of the 12-step program. Ah, there, I'm part of a community. Right. Boom. Right? Awesome. Is that a cure of every part? Because I, I believe addiction is actually a constellation of things. It's not just the substance abuse. The substance abuse is just the most uh, tangible, tangible or, or observable yeah. or, 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 or grotesque part of it, if you, if you will. But there's a bunch of like behaviors and thoughts and attitudes that go along with that, right? And so the community doesn't cure all that, but it gives you a fighting chance to maybe then address it. On, and, and, to, and so 12 steps, unfortunately, are commonly, the 12 step fellowships are very misunderstood. Also, they, a lot of its members don't do it. They're not the best representatives, unfortunately. They shouldn't be the ones that people think of, but because a lot of 12 step people can be very evangelical. Right. And they can say, rah, rah, rah. They can sound like, like, Cults. Zealous, yeah, cults, sure. cult, perfect word. And I don't really, that pisses me off sometimes because I think they're turning people off. But in spirit, in principle, 12-step programs say you can believe in whatever you want, even if it's nothing. Okay. 12-step programs seem to work even if you don't buy it. There's people who get sober and think, this is all fucking bullshit. <laughs> and then five years later, they're still saying it's all fucking bullshit, but they haven't had a drink. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So then... And the funny thing about 12-step programs is you can say this is all horse shit, and we'll invite you back next week. That's great. Right? It's one of the most understanding and inclusive places I've ever met in my life, or ever been in my life, for real. That's great. They've helped me more than anything. Like, never mind the substance abuse problem. 12-step people, a lot of whom were religious and conservative, this is a... F- for all the you liberal listeners, <laughs> yeah, they helped me learn how to drive. They taught me social skills. They taught me like they got me jobs. Like they really wanted to see you succeed. They helped me integrate in, in in the purest definition back into society. Yeah, these are lame and they weren't paid a fucking nickel to do it. Yeah, right. So yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah, and I think I think ultimately I think the cure, quote unquote, as it were, for addiction lies in that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's big. And it is a burden to place on a lot of people, but I think if the, the cure for a lot of social ills, I think, comes in some form of that. I don't necessarily believe the government can do it, or even social programs. 
they're good to have, but I don't think by themselves they're enough. I think at I, the end of the day, the neighbor helping the neighbor is is where it lies. And and especially when you're dealing with programs where people don't inherently understand the issue. It's like you can't have someone appointed to deal with drug with like substance abuse or addiction that don't have experience with it any more than you could have um, take anything like say a white person appointed to deal with POC issues in a marginalized community. You know, like that won't not... stop them though. <laughs> <laughs> but but that government program's yeah. never going to succeed. No, and I, I and which isn't to say that they can't succeed. That you couldn't appoint people that do have experience. It, with it, it, so. What it is, is is it's just I don't think it's the only thing, and that seems to be unfortunately where the the the, the, the trend is going. It's just sure. pour a bunch of government money into all these resources and programs and stuff like that. Hire a bunch of people for all these things, and then sure. and it seems to be, and then that'll do it. And it's like no, no. There's the, the real cure for addiction is getting to people before they become addicted, sure. which I don't think is humanly possible. But sure. it, it 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 starts with families or communities long before the person picks up the pipe or the joint or the bottle right or shortly thereafter and i don't mean aggressive intervention Mm -hmm. just hopefully there's enough social emotional psychological spiritual supports in place in someone's life where even if they do take a joint or a bottle or whatever Mm -hmm. that doesn't get to the point where they're cast out of that same community right sure yeah I would I would say that somewhere the secular community and the, the quote unquote free thinkers communities haven't really been picking up the ball like they could have. Like I'm I'm part of the free thinkers Richmond um, blood group. So when we all go and give blood, it's all tracked as like we're all atheists giving blood as like a community. Although I'm now disqualified from giving blood because I'm a man who's had sex with a man even once, even with a condom, even oral. Right. Um, so I'm a former IV drug user. So sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the the point I'm making is there is a place for community that religion used to fill that as we're becoming more secular as a society, we aren't, I feel, and again, I haven't looked at the research, but I feel like maybe it's just in Vancouver I'm noticing this, but I don't feel a sense of community, certainly not with my neighbors, and just not really in general. And, and I've heard this complaint from a lot of Vancouverites where they say they don't feel like we have really strong communities in Vancouver. I would I would agree. Um, what I can say is, having lived in a very religious community in Abbotsford, yeah, and somewhat in Vancouver in the in the twelve step, mm-hmm. it's not quite as religious, but it's more religious than not. And having been around secular, sure, as an ex-convict, who, sexual abuse survivor, street kid, runaway, yep. fucked up family, religious people helped me more than yep. atheist li- religious Absolutely. conservative types and i don't mean big c conservative just sure you mean little c yep. little c right then they might not hate gays but they're not necessarily going to go to a gay wedding kind of thing right got you yeah uh they 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 uh believe more in family in, in traditional type things and traditional all this, values they, rather right. than yeah um what i would describe as social progress right right and they've helped me more than any single secular liberal person ever did sure because so, yeah. one guy explained it to me one time. He said the one thing that right-wing people tend to do do different than left-wing people is right-wing people, even though they might be against, like, social programs, sure. they'll hire the guy. Left-wing people go, isn't there a guy for that? Don't we have an employee who does that? Right. It's like, uh, don't we, shouldn't the government be taking care of the social program right. that helps fund these 12-step programs right. or, that, or whatever? Or yeah. Sure, whatever, yeah. 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 As opposed to trying to get business funding, doing the personal volunteering... 
I find that a lot of the lower C conservatism, mm-hmm. if that's even a word, conservatism, anyway. Conservatism, sure, that is a word, actually. That, yeah. It, yeah. that it comes out of that, like you said, Abbotsford, like that kind of low population density, maybe not rural, but sometimes rural, that mindset that, like, if it's going to get done, I have to be the one doing it. And that kind of gets lost when you transition to more of the urban environment where people are talking more in terms of liberalism and they're talking more in terms of, like, yeah, I mean, like, live and let live. People have problems. I'm not going to personally deal with all of this stuff because I'm, I'm one person in a huge city. Like, Which is true. Sure. And, no. and like, I'm not going to solve this problem on the weekend giving out food at a homeless shelter. No. And I think that has come to the point where people no longer almost go to give food out at the homeless shelter. It's like, because one person can't make a difference, you're worried that... Yeah, I, I think personally that it's not necessarily doing things like giving out food at the homeless shelter. I think it's like, if you own a business, why not hire the weird-looking guy? Sure. If you work at a bank and the the, the, the homeless-looking guy comes mm-hmm. in, why not just, and he doesn't have ID, why not work to change the policy so you can get him a bank account? Shit like this, right? Yeah. Like, if the guy's flailing and fucked up and stuff like that, why not try and gently help him Ground. learn to be more sure. I don't want to say presentable it sounds so smug but like okay here's people are having problems with you because you do this even just that yeah yeah just that yeah like not even helping them be more presentable yeah. just yeah. helping them identify the problem right we have received a complaint because of X yeah I'm just letting you know right. here's our policy if we keep receiving complaints right shit like that I'm sorry you're having to deal with this yeah. almost like yeah. but stuff like that I yeah. think those are I think those small little steps would vastly improve a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing is, in Vancouver, it's very hard to be starving. Because a lot of the programs do feed people. It's very sure. hard to not find food in Vancouver. Sure. Right? Shelter can be a bit tougher. Sure. Uh, there is a emergency shelters, and you can find places to stay. But food is actually not an issue. Because you can typically get it from this church or that church or that, this. So many. So you many go down places. to the downtown. You and I could eat like kings. We could, we could gain weight if you took, hung around with me for a bit, a couple wow. a week on the downtown east. There's tons of food down there. That's really good to hear. Yeah, um, so yeah. That's so that's that that's some so that comes from government programs right. and religious organizations and right. individuals. That's amazing. That's cool, right? Yeah. We don't need any more people handing out sandwiches on Hastings. We really right. don't. Like it, it's so many people do it, and it's well intended. There's other things that they could do that would probably be more Benefit beneficial. More. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love to hear your suggestions. This is a side. Uh, clothes services okay if you might if you're good at accounting some of these people might need their taxes done shit like that uh vets there's a vet who helps with animals down there because people have pets i just use that as an example i'm not saying it's a vat a great need but it, it it's sure. just you can sort of extrapolate from i mean animals yeah. can be mental health yeah, absolutely uh employment Maybe you don't want... Okay, maybe some guy who looks like a rat, like a maniac junkie you don't want in your place of employment, your, rest, your fine dining restaurant. Sure. But is there anything you could do? Is there any... Could you, could you get them to sweep your... Uh, something. You, do yeah. you know what I mean? And yeah. shit like that. So rather than... I, I, don't, I don't care if people give money to people. I don't, I don't give... That's your own decision. But sure. why not give them a job where they could earn sure. the money? Es- especially if they can be consistent. Right. And or even not people... consistent. Just like... You know, like sure, maybe don't give the guy the job where you need them there every day, no matter what, at the same sure. time. But like, sure. Yeah. But if you have like a, I don't know, I need these, this done to these things. Can you I take have. this there? Sure. 
Uh, can you be a courier for the next four hours kind of deal like that? Yeah. Kind of? Why not, right? Sure. The, the, and, and these are just small little examples, but I think if you added a bunch of those up, mm-hmm. I think, would it eradicate all these social problems? No, but I think it would improve them. And it's also like business expense. If you pay uh-huh. someone to like clean clean your windows kind yeah. of deal or like um, sweep sweep your front area or like any, any type of task that, like you said, doesn't have to be done every day, but you need it done eventually. Yeah. So if you have four hours of piecemeal work, you can choose someone who would really benefit from that work, even just from having a sense of like, I did something today. Like I was appreciated. I accomplished something. Yep. Little wins are big wins. That's it, man. Yeah. I hear you. Wow. Okay, so moving on. Um, almost almost run out of prompts here. Oh, nice. I know. I think I'm running out of gas anyway, though. So okay. Think, yeah. we're, we're 42 minutes in. So. Yeah. And, and we can end it anywhere if you cool. feel uncomfortable. Just let me know. Oh, did you want to touch on the 12 steps in a 12-step program? The thing or is about that not where the, the, you're at right now? <clears throat> the thing about talking about that is... I think people would probably be better off doing their own research on the yeah. 12 steps. There's lots of resources out there. Because there's also a lot of different 12 steps. That's right. Um, what I can, and then, I mean, to break each step down, I think, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a lot of time. Yeah, it, it, basically what the step, I can synth, I can sort of simplify how the steps are, though. It's admitting you ha- have a problem. Yep. Admitting you need help. Yep. That you can't address the problem yourself. Going and seeking help. Yep. Then it's doing examination of yourself and seeing where you're... Resp- One of the neat things about the 12 steps is it gives you power by taking responsibility for your life. Yeah. So here's what I do. Mm-hmm. That is, they call them character defects or shortcomings or any of these kinds of things. But it's, it's stuff that... Remember I said addiction's like a constellation? Yeah. So even if I'm not doing drugs, I still like to lie a lot. Sure. I still like to do little oily behaviors and sure. things like that. So things that some people might scoff at. Well, so socially unacceptable, antisocial, and ultimately sure. are going to. There's also shame-based behaviors too, right? So, Interesting. Yeah. So if I'm stealing from you, right? Ultimately, that's a shame-based behavior. Like, Even if I don't feel it in the moment, I'm, I'm you're reinforcing be of that. that afterwards. Yeah. I I I'm also reinforcing. I can't ask you for it. Right. Or I can't earn, do the work and earn it myself. Almost like I'm yeah. not worthy of it, so I'm going to take it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you still don't feel worthy of That's it. That's right. So doing the 12 steps is taking stock of all these things, like doing an inventory, really. What are the things yeah. I do that are maybe not the best? Taking responsibility for them, admitting them to someone else so you're not alone with them anymore. Yeah. Working to address them, to yeah. change them, to modify them as best you can. Some stuff never goes away, but it, yeah. you, you can at least keep it to a dull roar. Then it's con- then continually doing this 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 process over and over again mm-hmm. for your life. So it's maintenance, yeah. Prayer and meditation. So let's let's even remove the word prayer. Just something to be grounded. Right? Yeah, and, and it doesn't even research. need to be actual meditation. It could mm-hmm. just it can just be. Is there anything I do that sort of just keeps my mind like out of the out of that toxic spiral right. of internal? Yeah. Absolutely. And sometimes it can be full on. Uh, a transcendental meditation and sure. sometimes it could just be drawing or I read or something yeah. like that, right? like a peaceful activity that just grounds you in your body almost out of your head and your uh, thoughts. Absolutely. And there's a lot of research in mindfulness-based stress reduction. There's, yep. there's a lot of like skeptics and free thinkers approved like you can quote-unquote concentrate if you don't want to call it meditation yep. but yep. it comes back to being super good for your health and really beneficial for like your thoughts. Yep. But, and then the last step yeah. which is that at the 12th step which mm-hmm. I will quote Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to addicts 
alcoholics right. it's filling the thing yep. and practice these principles in all our affairs so helping other people now yep. that i've overcome my issues i try and help other people and the practice these principles in all our affairs is living ethically it's it's yeah. such an important principle no. too i mean even just with the little bit that the work that I've done on myself, I shouldn't minimize by calling it a little bit, but even dealing with trauma as, as I've dealt with it, when I have a conversation with someone who's in early stages or is stuck somewhere in their, in their recovery from trauma, just that, and I'm able to provide them even a small insight that gets them unstuck, somehow it, I feel less traumatized by that. It's like it gives purpose and meaning to what I suffered, and somehow that makes me feel like less of a victim. It's the 51% ratio is what they say in the program. <laughs> you, when you help someone else, you, get you actually get 51% of really? the benefit. Because let's say I tell someone, here's what I did to overcome heroin addiction. They go, oh, fuck you. I'm still going to go get high. I stayed clean that day because I tried to help. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You reminded yourself that you were on the right side of that decision. And also, and for that single moment, I wasn't thinking about me because addiction is a very self-centered thing too. Interesting. It, it, it goes back to when you're in pain, it's self-centered. Hmm. Because you have to be. It, yeah. I'm in pain. This needs to I'm abate. literally focusing yeah, on what I'm I can't care about you right now. I'm in pain. I need to address this. Right. Addiction, one could argue, the core of it is pain. So it's, it's a constant self-centered loop, right? Right. And that doesn't go away when you stop doing drugs. That never right. goes away. Um, That's part of the constellation. Fuck, it's a pain in the ass. Uh, but so one way to reduce its impact yeah. to think about other people right yeah yeah that yeah. makes a lot of sense the which again, in no way do i ever do perfectly or masterfully no. or anything like that i don't think anyone does no it's one of those things if you can do it a couple times a day you're doing well yeah yeah there are people that have compassion meditations and it's interesting because i've tried doing compassion meditation before and it's like you're on the wagon at the first part of meditation because it's like think about you know someone that like makes you feel really really good someone that's really supported you and think fondly about them they're like okay now that you're on the compassion wagon now now try and think about somebody who maybe hasn't directly helped you but that you feel more neutral to that's in your life that benefits you that's an acquaintance and they just keep moving that person like they move the goal further and further away and try and get you to extend that compassionate feeling as far out as you can go and there's always a point i find where i fall off the wagon right where it's like try and be compassionate to like any person on the street i'm like i can do that no like try and be compassionate to someone who's hurt you try and be compassionate to somebody who actually wants to hurt you right now in this moment i'm like i'm off the wagon <laughs> you know like yeah i'm I, i'm just check please i'm i'm out of the out of the room at that point but yeah i mean but that's again it's it's the effort it's about putting in the work it's not about getting there necessarily but just the fact that i tried that day means i wasn't you know anyways I'm getting hungry. Yeah? yeah. Well, I think we should probably call it pretty All right. much there. And right. yeah. One thing I do want to say, and yeah. this is my one... Please do. One thing I like to be a bit activisty about is, for your listeners, we have a lot of people dying in this province right now yes. of drug overdose. And I know a lot of people... I was talking to someone yesterday, and I said, has this affected you at all? And he said, no. And I find that amazing because I know, I know people who are dying every day, pretty much. Sometimes I go a week without someone dying, and then, and then three people will die, up. right? And I know it probably is not going to affect everyone, especially middle-class types who aren't really involved with people in recovery and stuff like that. But this is a this is literally an epidemic right now. More people have died from this the opioid overdose crisis than had died during the AIDS crisis of the 80s. Wow. And it's affecting 85% of the people who are dying are men. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, There is no real end in sight. One of the problems with all this is stigma. Right. It's not just downtown east side people who are dying, but that is the majority, unfortunately. Um, I think what we need to do as a society, and I think all of us individually could do this, is maybe try, and if you see the gross junkie, maybe for a second... Like, yeah, they're going to make you uncomfortable. I, I know what I used to look like. I wasn't a pretty sight. And in fact, sometimes I was, da- often I was dangerous, right? But we need to, I'm going to lay the blame to a certain degree on middle class people's feet for a second. They are the ones who have the power to destigmatize this. Because do, they control the narrative. That's right. Do I have the step-by-step prescription? Not necessarily. Sure. But... As someone who's coming out of that and still struggles with it, no one owes me anything, by the way. I'm not saying that. But I think the path out of it or the path while they're in it and can't get out of it could be maybe made a little bit easier. Yeah. Does that mean you got to invite people into your house? No. Does that mean you got to put up with inappropriate behavior, abusive behavior, anything like that? But it's like maybe not always just seeing people as disgusting monsters like trying to humanize them a bit like when you go down them on the street be like yeah that that's terrible like that would not be a fun place to be but not where they're a victim either right yeah so not disempowering them as victims and not dehumanizing them as scenery right but acknowledging their humanity Yeah. yeah and that struggle yeah and that's that's all I got, and I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know if I cleared any of that up, but it's just something that's very important to me, right? Because so, this is death. These yeah. are deaths. This isn't just, yeah. Th- this isn't people like oh that's problematic language. These are people dying, yeah. right? And that's the part where I have to where, and that could have been me. Yeah. So I that's why I feel a bit imp- like uh, um, passionate. Passionate, good word, because uh, this is serious. This yeah. is like, it's it's a crisis. Yeah. It is exactly yeah. that. just like. You know the grid and then AIDS crisis was, and yeah. and with the uh, fentanyl and opioid crisis, it absolutely is. Are you interested in sharing? Are you still counting how many friends you have? Oh no, I stopped counting at thirty, but I'm probably about a hundred now. Of uh, people you personally personally know from fentanyl, and yeah, other from opioids. from some kind of drug overdose since uh, the end of 2016. No. Yeah, that's a lot of friends. It's pretty well one or two a week, yeah. on average. Sometimes how? it's a f- way more than that. How do you cope with that emotional strain? Do you find you're becoming numb to it? Yeah, you have to. It's just too much yeah. otherwise. Yeah, it's the only other... I've talked and researched it. The only other time you know anyone who's... Or, or the amount of people who are dying like that is if you're like a soldier. Right. Or there's like a plague right. or something, right? Because it's just... Yeah. It's a lot of people out of your personal circle of friends. Yeah. Um, I'm curious... And, and we can totally end the podcast if you're running out of steam. But I'm, I'm curious how that impacts intimacy and making new friends for you. Uh, I can make new friends. Uh, the problem is that, again, middle class, you're supposed to present a certain way when you're grieving and people die. Right. And then when you're like, no, nah, whatever. They're like, right. Oh. Then they get offended and then you have to cope. Then you have to soothe them. And it's like, right. Oh, you, you can't just casually say, yeah, friend died today. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Right. Or using humor to, jo- to cope with it. You're right. not supposed to do that. Makes and, people really and, uncomfortable. And, and then I just say, how, you try knowing fucking 100 people who died. Yeah, and, and you've got to do something. How, what the fuck are you going to do? Go crazy? Right? Yeah. And they would all like that joke anyway, so shut the fuck up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And again, it's, it's, it's this sort of bourgeois 
oh, I'm speaking on behalf of people I don't even know. And uh, right. Interesting. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, you just made something click for me really yeah. well. The notion, like you said earlier, about third-party accusations. Yeah. There is this tendency to speak on behalf of others because we're taught, at least from a lot of social justice perspectives, to lift up voices that are marginalized. But that gets problematic when you're speaking on behalf of people you're speaking to. Good way to put it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it clicked because of what you were saying. Yeah. But yeah, thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I think we're we're getting close. We to did time. it. We, we solved it. society. <laughs> it's all gonna be fixed in the yeah, morning. As soon as you edit it, just make sure you edit it okay, or else it'll all. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just every. Yeah. It'll be the end of Fight Club, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and your energy, Mark. I really You're appreciate it. Thank you. For, thank you for having me. That's Mark Hughes with Pulling the Trigger Podcast. I'll put links for you later. Sweet. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening, Intimates. I hope you got something out of it. The background music is Molten Snow by Jesse Spillane. Special thanks again to my Patreon supporters who make all of this possible. Thanks for your time, and talk to you soon.